Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. This week, I'm super excited to have Mark Gilbraith join me as my special guest. Mark is the founder and CEO of Liquid Space, the hybrid workplace management software as a service platform and on-demand office marketplace for enterprise. The Liquid Space marketplace is the only platform today that is providing dynamic companies with the superpowers to provide a global workforce with workplace flexibility and provide their workplace leaders with the tools to control and to learn from the new rituals of work and workplace. Liquid Space is serving the growing community of companies on the right side of history who have chosen a hybrid workplace future, including companies like the GSA, VMware, ATT, Spotify, Shopify, Etsy, and many more. A Silicon Valley veteran, Mark began his career in the semiconductor industry in the late 1980s before founding and operating a series of software and real estate ventures culminating with Liquid Space. When not at work, you are likely to find Mark on a bike. Welcome, Mark. Really excited to actually have you as a guest on our podcast this week. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Sandra. As a longtime follower of the podcast, it's great to be uh, on it as well as to get to listen to it. So, yeah, um, thanks so much. Uh, about myself, 30 years in technology. Wow. Um, it's sobering to think it's been that long. Uh, electrical engineer out of the University of Virginia, goes to Silicon Valley, spent the better part of a decade in the semiconductor industry, which is what gave Silicon Valley its name before I got lured by the the appeal of uh, the internet and, and software and, and took a shift career-wise from a technology standpoint toward building uh, software-based solutions for companies. And uh, had my first dabbling with a marketplace-type company in the late 90s. Uh, in the mid 2000s or early 2000s, I uh, somewhat uh, unexpectedly had an opportunity to make a life work balance uh, move and, and uh, move to the mountains of Idaho. Didn't think it was going to be an 18 year jaunt, but it has been. Uh, and it was from my perch in Idaho that I started to get involved in, in the commercial real estate industry, uh, both as a a developer on a very small scale that was a relatively short-lived period, but that actually ended up inspiring uh, the last, oh gosh, 14 years of my career, which had been in and around flexible office itself, co-working. I opened a co-working space in the Boise, Idaho area in 2008. Uh, and for the last uh, 11 years, deeply and fully involved in and committed to technology serving the flexible office industry, or as it's perhaps more more uh, recently referred to, you know, co-working and and hybrid workplace, uh, the term of the term of the hour, so to speak. So long ramble there, Sandra, but uh, technology and real estate. Interesting. Um, so uh, I actually, well, I know you are the uh, founder and CEO of Liquid Space, which when you and I were talking the other day. I remember hearing about Liquid Space back in the mid 2000s, uh, and I thought back then 
what a really cool concept. So I'm just curious, um, what was the inspiration behind Liquid Space? Like what, what was the problem that you were trying to solve for companies back then? So in 1999, I was the first time CEO of a startup company and uh, venture back based in Milpitas, California, Silicon Valley. And we had just raised a, a healthy Series B capital raise, and we were poised for a lot of headcount growth. And, and that sort of thrust upon us the decision to, to go seek a, an office that we could grow in. Uh, we had been in a, a small sublet office in Santa Clara prior to that. And uh, we found a broker, which is what you do, and we ended up signing a five-year lease for an office space in Milpitas, which is, you know, what you did. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, that we're actually being <laughs> – I'll, I'll slow down a little bit. And, and I, I do, I vividly recall, even to this day, the emotions and the, and the uncertainty that came with signing that lease agreement. I was, I was literally having to speculate, speculate at what our headcount and resource needs would be five years down the road. And I, I didn't have a crystal ball on two years down the road, but nonetheless, you know, the, the form of real estate transaction that was available to me to satisfy my, the next tranche of my growth needs was a lease. And, and a five-year lease, as I'm sure all of your listeners will relate, was a relatively short-term lease even. And so uh, that, that that discomfort that came with that decision uh, stayed with me. And, and, you know, and as it turns out, uh, the space that we took down was, was more than we ever ended up needing. So it ended up being a bad decision, which probably many of your listeners can relate to. Sometimes you need more. Sometimes you need less. Rarely when you make a long-term commitment have you hit it on the nose, have you? Uh, so that professional experience stayed with me, and uh, I mentioned earlier that I had uh, gotten involved in commercial real estate development here in, in, in Idaho. It was down in the Boise, Idaho market, where I actually ended up building a small portfolio of self-storage facilities. And if anybody's ever used self-storage or mini-storage, you know that the, the business model of it and the service offering of it, you know, tends to be you know, flexible and scalable. You can have any size locker that you want. It's a month-to-month agreement. You don't need an attorney to review the license agreement with you. You don't no- negotiate on the terms. You, you move in when you want to. You move out when you want to. You upsize or downsize when you want to. And, and, um, and, it's, and that type of service serves consumers as well as businesses. Um, the efficiency of that business model, which I got to know deeply firsthand as an operator, inspired me. I routinely reflected on, oh my goodness, if, if, if only, if only something of that flexibility and scalability had existed in my officing need, you know, eight years ago, uh, gosh, that would have been a better model. And that actually inspired me to stumble into the world of space as a service. And I ended up building a co-working space uh, on some retail frontage of one of the self-storage facilities that I had in Meridian, Idaho. And I was inspired by the notion of taking that very same business model, any size you might want by the month or longer if you need it, upsize, downsize, never waste space. You know, never have too much, never have too little. That was sort of the guiding notion. And, and the name Liquid Space actually was the name of the membership model uh, at our co-working space in Meridian, Idaho. When we were building buildings and had a vision of building a physical network of locations, this is in 2008. The global financial crisis had other designs on that, but but the principle lived on. And, you know, liquid space was actually an act two of a concept that I've been experimenting on as early as 2008. Liquid space launched in 2011, carrying forward the same principles, you know, provide people with the best space to do their best work. You know, more happy people working in better spaces. The planet smiles was and is our mission statement. Never have more than you need. And I guess lastly, 
always empower the individual, whether it's the sole proprietor of a one-person company or whether it's the employee of a 200,000-person enterprise, always trust and empower the employee to have some measure of agency over how, where, and in what type of environment they work. They, they know better than you possibly can. So it was, uh, it was that arc that, that led me from something as random and adjacent as self-storage into what is going to now be, for me, a career-defining focus on trying to make workplace uh, better and make people happier by virtue of enabling them to, to tap the space that they need when they need it, where they need it for their best work. Well, I always thought that the name Liquid Space was brilliant because it was like you totally know where you're going from a business model perspective. I did not know, though, the association or how it came to be was because of the experience that you had in storage. And now that I think of it, it's like, yeah, that's so it's so true. I've actually experienced the whole storage thing being in transition when I was moving kind of between two places. I had like five months and I was like, what do I do with my stuff? And so you kind of think you need a little bit of space and then you need a little bit more space. And then as you're getting rid of stuff, you need less space. And that flexibility is just exactly what, you know, what's needed when you need it and taking that concept and bringing it into the, into the workplace or into the leasing model or non-leasing model. If you, if you want to look at it that way is absolutely, um, absolutely brilliant. Um, I think it's a, if I can just sort of, it's just a, a quick sidebar on that. I think, yeah. I think it's half of what's needed in the office world. Yes. I think, I think the self storage sort of notion, you know, shorter term agreement, flexible, scalable, upsize, downsize, that's desperately needed on the sort of business model and agility dimension of how office and workplace works. The other, the and that's desperately needed that, that isn't personified in self storage is the human experience. Right. Right. And the criticality of of trusting and, and empowering individuals to be able to choose how they work and, and to recognize that one employee to another, one team member to another, one individual to another have have wildly different preferences, needs based upon their temperaments, based upon the tasks at hand, based upon where they are physically, where they are life wise, career wise, family situation. And, and oh, by the way, all of those variables are, are all themselves dynamic. And so. If you accept even a little bit of that hypothesis that the best space for Sandra is, is a highly unique thing to Sandra and highly dynamic for Sandra, then how can you possibly seek to come anywhere close to optimizing workplace for Sandra if you arrogantly presume that you're going to design an entire place, design an entire office and dictate to Sandra that she's, you know, cube 34, row H, you know, uh, and, and that that's going to be a place where she can thrive. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but just kind of thinking about my own personal experience working in various co-working spaces, spaces of service here in uh, Toronto when I was doing my own HR tech startup, kind of along the same lines of like work and life sort of coming together and, and having the flexibility. My experience was, this is going back, what, maybe 2011, 2012, um, was the majority of the users of such space were more, you know, self-employed entrepreneurs that didn't have sort of, you know, traditional office or the need for these large, you know, office spaces. Has that changed? Like, are you seeing more like a variation of user types in these types of spaces? Absolutely. Yeah, without question. 
when Liquid Space launched in 2011, co-working wasn't even a familiar term. There were there were maybe 20 co-working spaces across the U.S. You know, serviced office or executive suites was the, yes. the more familiar name, you know, owing to the, the early pioneering work of companies like uh, HQ and, and Regis. Uh, but co-working was a somewhat foreign name. Now, now co-working has sort of uh, rocketed into general awareness uh, to a large degree fueled by over $10 billion of soft bank capital that, that was injected into WeWork's wild ride. But the awareness, the, per, the, the persisting, the remaining, the ongoing awareness and proliferation of co-working is well-deserved. You know, in 2011 uh, or 2008, when I launched uh, my co-working space in Boise, uh, the, the typical user for us then actually was a blend. About uh, 15% of our customers in 2008 were large enterprises. We had Motorola as a as a client. We had Minolta. We had Cisco as clients. And then, yes, to your comment and and perception, Sandra, a, a lot of small businesses, individual proprietors, freelancers. Um, but through this most recent decade, through the the 2010s, as co working found its legs and scaled, it became increasingly a choice for dynamic organizations. In 2019. Sort of the last full year before the pandemic sort of put its stamp on history and on the future, enterprise or midsize and larger organizations was the fastest growing sector from a from a revenue standpoint for our business and the industry as a whole. It was fully 30 percent of the general consensus of what the co-working and serviced office industry consumption was. For liquid space, it was well over 50 percent of the activity we're seeing pre-pandemic. And in 2019, flexible office as a category of asset management for large occupiers was still well less than 2% of their total workplace. Mm-hmm. So it's such a vast category. You know, the head, you know, midsize and large organizations are such a large piece of the officing pie. It didn't take much shift in behavior on their part in 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19 for it to become a really important uh, growth area. Pandemic hits then, and we, and we can talk about what the implications were there because it's only been an accelerant. So going back to when you first started with Liquid Space, like back in 2010, 2011, yeah. I remember back then that was kind of around the time that we had the stock market crash. And I was at CBRE at the time, and I remember there was a lot of corporate headquarters in the U.S. that were looking to get out of excess space. So very similar to what's happening now, although driven by the pandemic. You know, was there a difference between what companies were trying to do then versus what companies are trying to do now? From my vantage point, and I've had the privilege of of getting to engage with a great many firms, I think absolutely. Both the global financial crisis in 2008 and the COVID pandemic of 2020 to 22 asterisks, dot, 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 question mark. (laughs) Um, Both of those events were massive macroeconomic shocks on the economy, but also on companies. So I'll I'll run through a a couple of quick observations or perspectives on on what's the same, but then also what I think is, is absolutely different now. So both those things were black swan events. They were large. They were unpredictable. Uh, they had a huge impact. They both created economic strain on organizations. And in particular, with regards to the commercial real estate industry, I think both of those events created an urgency or at least a period of time where CEOs, CFOs and heads of corporate real estate at midsize and larger companies were told to take a look at the problem. 
you know, in 2009, 10, 11, you know, hey, hey, uh, you know, revenues are down. The top line performance is down. What can we do to to sort of bolster our financials? What what can we do if revenues are down? We can't control that. What can we do to to trim costs? And you know, human capital is a variable cost. You see things like layoffs that certainly happened in the in the wake of the global financial crisis. But but I still recall you know 2009, 10, 11, 12 as a as a as a meaningful period of time when companies were looking a bit more earnestly at the question of utilization of workplace. And of course this you know this goes right to the the why of Relogix as a company, which I'm a huge admirer of. But you know it was well understood for a decade prior to that that most large offices were highly underutilized in any given working day. Countless countless studies from various companies, whether done digitally with technology such as your center or done manually with walking around and counting butts and seats. You know, the general consensus in twenty you know ten, eleven, twelve was yeah. 30 to 40% of the workday, the office is sitting empty. So that same reflection and inspection took place here in the wake of COVID starting. In fact, we, it was one of the things that we predicted within weeks would be a shockwave of this work from home experiment when it kicked off in March, April of 2020. We, we, we reasoned Okay, this is getting this is this this is past is present. Uh, enterprises are going to be looking at cost savings again, and and good. You know, we knew it's not a secret. Even, we knew that workplace was underutilized. That that'll be a healthy thing. Uh, but something else was different. We also predicted, and we we benefited from a second prediction also coming true, which was we also reasoned that in addition to companies looking more closely at the underutilization of their traditional portfolio. We also expected, and we've seen, Sandra, that even if I remember at the start of the pandemic, we said this is going to last at least three months, maybe maybe six months. But we said even if it's just three months, that'll be enough time for a second thing to happen, which is managers and employees alike will come to grips with the fact that the shit didn't hit the fan when I had to work at home, or the or, or the, you know the world didn't like productivity didn't collapse when I was given the ability to choose wherever else I might work, whether it was my home, whether it was the coffee shop down the street from my house during the pandemic, whether it was my vacation rental uh, or a co-working space that stayed awake and, and during that period. And so that's the piece that's different this time. I think enterprises are no less, in fact, they're even more aligned today than they were in 2008 around the cost savings opportunity, which is why we're now seeing the growing clarity on what's happening in the leasing, the traditional leasing world. And companies of all size are increasingly embracing an entirely different perspective about employee experience, about workplace experience, about agency, about enablement of flexibility and choice for employees. Entirely different than what was even contemplated uh, in 2009, 10, 11, 12 post-GFC. Simply put... Companies are letting employees choose where they're going to work in conjunction with, at the same time, in parallel, looking to reduce, tra- you know, transform, rationalize their pre-existing and, for most companies, bloated footprint. Interesting. Yeah, and we're we're seeing the same the same thing. I think w- the other part that's interesting about this potential shift, and I I think it's more than potential. I think it's going to happen. It's just you don't know how big of a shift it's going to be. I mean, you know, as people that have been in the industry for a long time, as you and I have been, you kind of see the writing on the wall. Like it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out, but you sort of have to let 
business sort of do their thing and eventually they'll, they'll come around. But one of the questions that we get quite often is when you think about existing leases. So some companies still have a couple of years worth of time, you know, on their existing leases. And so they automatically look at that and say, well, we're committed for the next couple of years and, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Well, there is. I mean, there's a penalty obviously associated with doing that. But does looking to space as a service provide an opportunity for companies like this? Like I'm thinking about past experiences when I worked at other companies that were looking at their excess space and actually implemented uh, almost like a space as a service within within their own portfolio where maybe it didn't generate revenue, but it was kind of like having a sublease where at least you were recovering costs or better yet, you were using that space for event space or making it available to other people within the community. Are you seeing anything like that in your world? Oh, absolutely. So let's so let's take the the simple kernel of idea that that was liquid space in 2011 when we launched at the South by Southwest conference in, in Austin, Texas. And when we had, you know, three locations in our marketplace and they were all they were co-working spaces and serviced offices in the Bay Area. The basic kernel of the idea there was we're going to give Sandra the ability to open up an app and search, find and book a space on demand. So we're going to empower the individual with with choice and that choice implicitly gives her flexibility around where she's going to work because what, what, what we sort of invented in our industry it seems commonplace now but what we invented then was the ability to, to book space for the duration of the task and that might be an entire day of work or it might be an hour of a meeting so that was the core notion right enable every employee to be able to procure space that meets their needs per their perspective for the duration of the task now let's apply that to what we see happening right now as companies are in a grinding way trying to to adapt themselves to the, I hate to say it, the new normal, right? Or the, to, to the realities that we're, that we're now facing. And that notion of individual having the ability to take space on their terms when they need it, where they need it, is manifesting in multiple ways. Many companies are looking at their existing portfolio and they're doing hybrid transformations of their existing office. And there's a fair bit of practice work that big service providers and architecture firms are rallying around to help companies who in 2019 may have had an office that was assigned work points, lots of benching, that you know, dedicated desks and offices. They're looking at how do I take that existing portfolio, which, Sandra, as you touched on, may have three, five, seven, ten years of lease term left, right? How do I take that and make it more relevant for the now? And more relevant for the now is uh, instead of it being assigned locations, even though I own it and lease it, it needs to operate with an as a service like dynamic to it. How do I turn my own offices into a portfolio of choices for my employees? Furthermore, what what sort of adaptive redesign of my internal environment might I undertake to make it more relevant for the type of work that employees are coming back to the office to do? Might I need more uh, spaces for collaborative work or convening and gathering, whether it is informal and relationship building in nature or whether it is intensive and concentration oriented scrums and, and collaboration suites. So so lots of activity underway right now with companies internally thinking about their own portfolio that they're chained to as a space as a service. Most are doing that for their own employees as the customers. 
So I'm a 10,000 person company. I've got, you know, 300 square feet per employee. I'm going to look at my existing portfolio of 20 offices. I'm going to turn it into an environment that my employees can come into when they want to and we'll give them some technology to be able to see what's available and book a seat. In addition, some companies are revisiting a concept that we've been a champion of for all of the history of liquid spaces, which is, wow, uh, we've done that uh, and we've got more space in our portfolio than we need. <laughs> right? And, yeah, we've talked to our broker partner and the sublet market's kind of soft. Uh, so, yeah, we'll we'll share some of that excess space with other entities. So you've got a, a reconsideration happening now of companies looking at platforms such as liquid space marketplaces that can uh, enable people with excess space to be able to monetize it. Thirdly, many employers over the course of the pandemic uh, were hiring, growing their organizations in new ways. They were hiring people uh, beyond the geographies of where they had previously had real estate. And that's a that's an enormous aspect of what's been happening over the last two years for many, many companies. They're, they've been hiring anywhere, and now they're finding the need to provide workplace uh, where their people are. And so that's forcing them to contemplate, you know, hybrid workplace, flexible office, co-working space, because it's the it's practically speaking, it's the only viable way to solve for many, i.e. tens, hundreds, thousands of employees who may be, you know, a diaspora of your employee base. How do I how do I reasonably solve for hundreds or thousands of locations for hundreds or thousands of employees in a dynamic, flexible way? You're not going to do that with a thousand more long term leases. Right. And so so co-working and the flexible office industry is really coming into its own now as more and more companies have embraced distributed workforces, hiring, hiring in more and in, 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 in more diverse places, including secondary markets, tertiary markets, mountain towns, international locales. And so. The concepts of co-working, flexible, shared space, they're permeating the corporate campus and they're permeating the diaspora of locations where employees have chosen to put themselves and still remain members of companies. Yeah, that's actually leads really nicely into the next question. Uh, as I, I've recently had a conversation with someone about just bringing co-working into neighborhoods like if you think about you know the traditional offices you've got sort of urban city centers where you know all the corporate offices for the most part are located you know co-working space kind of along the same lines although you do get a little bit more distribution in some of the you know suburb um, areas you know you see more of that just in general like where you've got those concentrations in the city and then you've got you know the co-working spaces that are picking up on these other areas to take advantage of the fact that people have left the urban city centers, but they might still have a requirement for offices. But even just as of late, I mean, I know it's been in the news for a while, but like about Airbnb and how they're also now jumping on the space as a service bandwagon, right, and kind of going after that office market. And it's interesting how, like you said, it's it's about the experience, right? And it's kind of like, we heard at the beginning, it was like, you know, offices now are competing with like the cafes and the hotels and, you know, all the other sort of typical spaces. But now we're seeing it. It's actually coming into like people's homes, which when you think about that, it's like, well, that opens up a whole new market. Like you're now in neighborhoods. You're you're like literally down the street, potentially from where where people live. So how do you see that? the whole sort of model of as a service sort of playing out, do you think that it's something that's going to be more 
uh, prolific in the sense that, you know, people can basically make decisions to work wherever they want. And then that obviously is going to create challenges for companies from a management perspective. So how do you see that playing itself out? So uh, Jurassic Park comes to mind and, 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 uh, Notwithstanding the most recent installment of that of that uh, uh, franchise of films, which I didn't care for as much, I, nonetheless I'm a big fan of of the storyline. And, and Jeff Goldblum is one of the actors, and I think it was I think it was the very first movie where where Jeff Goldblum, as this quirky philosophical individual, sort of says, "Life finds a way," right? And he was he was talking about sort of the pervasive nature of of life finding a foothold right and and, and he was referencing how if dinosaurs were reincarnated and, and let out of the wild they'd find a way they would cling right well i think the concept of flexibility and choice and and this opening of of pandora I don't know, i'll say pandora's box but this this enablement that that employees have now been given over the last two years this grand and far longer than expected experiment life finds a way it's now clinging it's clinging to every surface that it can. Like people are are working uh, effectively in an infinite number of locales beyond what they had previously. They they're, they're relocating, they're recalibrating their lives, they're rethinking their priorities, they're doing great work. They're 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 finding a way to to redevelop the rituals of work and workplace connection with colleagues. And we shouldn't underestimate the amount of work, good work to be done to help. Uh, rebalance and foster culture and, and team against the backdrop of a distributed workplace. But, but life finds a way, right? We're, you know, t- team effectiveness is finding its way. But we're, re- we're rebuilding a new forest. A new ecology is being rebuilt. We're not going to put that genie back in the bottle, I've, I firmly believe. There are some in our industry who are championing quite the opposite of that. But I, I think that genie never goes back in the bottle. Life finds a way. You know, happy people, happy, inspired, productive, enthralled employees is finding its way. And likewise, the means by which to have great, high productive, high performance, high velocity, engaged in supported teams is also finding its way. Now across a tapestry or an ecosystem of places, back to your original point, Sandra, which, which includes the smallest of towns, includes Space as a service options that are, you know, you know, you know, yards or meters from the front door of where someone might be living, if not in their own house. Right. And so um, I think Airbnb has always been a space as a service company from day one. Uh, it's it's obvious as heck to me that they're going to be a, a natural and important participant now as work and life blend. <laughs> right? Like it's just so yeah. obvious that they're. Their pre-existing ecosystem of great places to go and belong that are largely residential in nature are are running headlong into, you know, the the great places to work and thrive that are largely commercial spaces. It's blending. Yeah, I like the comment of the the you know the genie in the bottle has been let out and you know can't pull the genie go back in. Um, we're hearing a lot about uh, in the news, anyways, about tech companies that are taking on more space, and as we think about how tech has always been ahead of the curve when it comes to uh, workplace employee experiences. And the fact that, you know, I was reading an article, I think it was like last week that, you know, tech is about 20 years ahead of everybody else. So do you think, you know, we're taking cues or we will be taking cues from what tech 
is doing and that eventually will be going back because there seems to be this underlying belief that this is all going to blow over in a, in, a, in a year or two and everybody will just go back to, you know, what it, what it was like. Well, I partly agree and I partly disagree, I suppose, on, on um, was set up with that question. I think tech companies uh, will continue to be massive influencers of the broader business ecosystem. I and mean, frankly, few companies today are not tech companies themselves. <laughs> but you know, the classic software, high tech, high growth company, I think it will continue to be a massive influencer on, 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 broader, on the broader business community by virtue of the fact that they do blitz scale, they hyperscale, uh, and, they're, and they're oriented around building scale rapidly. But I disagree, I suppose, that we're seeing lots of headlines around tech companies taking lots of space. I, I actually don't think we're seeing much evidence of that. In fact, I think, you know, granted, there are and we could we could talk about perhaps some of the the high profile and, and much broadcasted large leases that have been done by a very few large conspicuous tech companies. But broadly speaking, the, the rank and file of other tech organizations, I, I don't see it. They're not going uh, down that path. Well, there, uh, we are we are nowhere close to the 2019 occupancy levels of yes. existing offices. We are nowhere close to the leasing velocities of 2019 for companies large or small. Uh, in fact, we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing anemic uh, return to office. Uh, we're still well, you know, and there are various firms that are that are thankfully sharing data, but we're seeing anemic uh, recovery on that. We're seeing anemic leasing activity. You know, the one place we're seeing strengthening is in perhaps the last place you want to see it if you're an office investor, which is sublet inventory. And so, no, I I, I don't see a, a, a data-based argument that says that tech companies are going back to the office wholesale. Um, I do believe that they will continue to be the influencers of the broader ecosystem of companies because they they learn fast. They make mistakes. They fail fast forward. And tech companies are, uh, as a category, uh, experimenting right now at high velocity, high, high pace uh, around hybrid workplace. They are experimenting with giving their employees choice. They're learning. The first compelling lessons and data-driven conclusions around how to create a profitable and engaged uh, organization, I think, are going to come from tech companies that have been the early adopters of hybrid. Now that I think of it, I think it's true. Like there's only like, you know, maybe two or three of the fan companies that have had, you know, yeah. stuff out in the news around taking on space in, in New York City, uh, you know, taking on space in Silicon Valley where and you kind of look at that and you think, okay, is it because real estate is seriously discounted? And so it's kind of like you go in and you take the space just in case. And then you think, well, what happens if people don't want to come back like we're seeing with companies like Apple where they tried to push the return to office and the employees are like, nope, yeah. not happening, right? And so you're heavily invested in real estate, but your employee base is saying, you know, we want to maintain the ability to be flexible. How do you balance that, right? Yeah, look, I'm, I am enormously sympathetic, empathetic to the workplace and CRE leaders and the C-suites that are, that are faced every week, every month now with agonizing decisions. Day by day, week by week, lease renewals are coming up. We're, you know, we're two and a half years into this black swan event of, of, of COVID. Uh, so we're, you know, we're a quarter of the way through a leasing cycle. 
So we've got a long way to go still. But, you know, day by day, week by week, companies are, are encountering this decision. Do I renew? <laughs> Do I terminate? Do I downscale? And the reality is that the people that own those decisions, the traditional CRE leaders, the CFOs, the CEOs, the planning models, the assumptions, the data insights that gave them confidence in 2019 or 2015 or 2010 to initiate those leases, all that data is no longer relevant. And our industry, you know, the, the work and workplace industry, is racked by uncertainty right now. And so, you know, what's needed desperately is new data signal that can start to bring confidence to these business leaders around what the new rituals and patterns and rhythms are working going to be. Because right now, these are these are major economic decisions to make. And, you know, good companies, at least, don't like to make decisions blindly. And the data is not there for them. So it's tough. And and no one wants to be wrong. And I guess a last comment. I mean this with this comment. I mean, with empathy. The CRE world was in the past, pre-pandemic, was not one that was uh, expected to or asked to be experimental or to be hyper creative. Yes, we brought creativity of thought into workplace design, but the fundamental notion of site selection and scaling and long term asset management, you know, Sandra, it was you know, dollars per foot. It's, you know, it's looking at spreadsheets. It's not it's not experimental fail fast forward. And so it's a perfect storm of heartburn for for that community. Now, you're being asked to make very large economic decisions with little to no data. uh, And the alternative for you is something that is, yes, experimental and new. It's embracing something like hybrid where where the opportunity is to run thousands of little experiments and learn what your new workplace pattern needs to be. That takes a different kind of thinking and a different kind of execution. And for some firms, probably a different kind of workplace person, or at least in addition to the team, because it's a different rhythm today. Workplace is much more like software. Yeah. Yeah. Software, you can ship new code every week, and within hours or days, you can learn whether it's working or not. Workplace uh, is going to learn its new footing on a similar velocity. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I think I think the way that you described it as not being as experimental pre-pandemic is absolutely true. I was lucky because I had an opportunity. I worked at a company where um, they were experimental. And that's really, I think, when I learned a lot about what else can you do when it comes to thinking about not just workplace, but also workforce, right? So again, if you're thinking pre-pandemic times and you're trying to understand where's the demand for talent, like, you know, you're, you're opening up the market to say, well, we're not just hiring here. We're going to hire where the market is for the talent that suits our needs, which might not necessarily be in the city where we have an office. And that whole shift in how you think about people first and mm-hmm. then whether or not space needs to follow, they're yeah. all inter interrelated. Like you need okay. to understand all of that. And obviously data certainly is going to is going to play into that. What's interesting, though, about um, the data is, you know, obviously in our world, we see it every day because it's what we do. Office occupancies certainly remain low. Another company, uh, Castles, puts out a weekly barometer. And I think it was last week that they indicated that office occupancy was hovering around 43 percent. That seems to kind of be plus or minus one percent sort of the trend, you know, week after week. Uh, They only isolate, you know, the top 10 cities. So that. 43% 43% is across the top 10 U.S. cities. And as I said, our data is showing a similar average 
from a desk occupancy perspective of about 30-35% with mm. a range obviously being as low as 5% and then in some instances being as high as 60%. So when someone thinks about space as a service, when you think about occupancy being so low, where's the demand coming from? Where's the demand coming from against all of this uh, optimism and ebullience about the yeah. flexible office industry? <laughs> A couple observations about the flexible office supply base first. Um, much of the uh, inventory from the conspicuous names, like if I, if I said co-working, what name comes to mind for you? Right? We work, we just, yeah. Yeah, if I say service office, if I say region, if I say co-working, say we work. A lot of folks don't know that the, the industry, those are, those are the two largest names. You know, Regis, far and away, the largest on a global basis. We work number two at about a third quarter of their size. But for both those firms, um, much of their inventory, their location bases are, are concentrated in the CBDs, especially so for, for WeWork, mm-hmm. you know, in the football cities of North America and the gateway cities around the world. And uh, what happened on week one of the pandemic was people went home and people tend to live, you know, yes, people in New York live in, in Manhattan, but in, in many markets, they live in, in suburbia and they commute or they moved there over the course of the pandemic. But unbeknownst to a lot of casual observers, the flexible office market is massively fragmented. There is a vast ecology of space providers, over 5,000 brands of co-working around the world, 50,000 locations. And, and day by day, week by week, more and more new space options emerging, whether it's uh, Airbnb locations that are being used for work or whether it's new co-working spaces that are launching – and a lot of that, as we scan our ecosystem of partners, tens of thousands of locations around the world, it's not at all unusual for us to encounter in a small secondary market, whether it's a Boise, Idaho, or a Bend, Oregon, or a Kalispell, Montana, or a, a Lisbon, Portugal, operators that are running full right now. So I think if you looked at the occupancy of co-working spaces in downtown Manhattan, you'd probably see... A healthier picture than traditional real estate, but not the level of intensity that you're seeing in some secondary and tertiary markets. So where is the demand coming from? In terms of segments of demand, it's coming from the freelancers and startup companies that had been using it and reliant upon it pre-pandemic. That didn't change. It's also newly coming from a wave of large enterprises and we've got a front row seat to this, that have declared hybrid workplace culture and policies as their go-forward strategy and who are putting platforms in place such as ours and giving their employees wholesale access and privilege to go out and tap into all of the possibilities of that ecosystem wherever they might choose. And so... I touched on earlier, pre-pandemic, flexible office was well under 2% of the collective footprint for, for corporations or enterprises as a class. There are abundant predictions out now that that percentage of enterprise or corporate footprint is going to rocket. It's going to march to, you know, JLL has long sort of declared as much as 30%. I think um, even if it only surges to 10% in the next several years, which we think is a slam dunk, you're talking about a 4x increase <laughs> in the industry, right? So, so um, the demand is coming from the long-established base, and it's coming from a whole new cohort of, of liberated enterprise employees. And that's the genie that, that's just not going to go back in the bottle. Right. Uh, 
that's the that's the expectation that any knowledge worker is going to bring to any hiring uh, possibility or decision uh, with with any company. Not every company will do it, but I think the general expectation is going to be that hey, I there there ought to be some level of workplace choice that comes with this role you want to hire me for, Sandra. Otherwise, I might say, nope, I'll take the other offer. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. So I think it's similar to what we've seen with workplace flexibility, you know, thinking back, you know, in the early 2000s where 15 percent, 20 percent had flexibility. Some people were actually working remote and then now seeing it swing way over to the other side where it's almost like flipped. So now you've got 20 percent that want dedicated space and 80% that are looking for some level of flexibility and being able to provide those options is definitely the way to win. Just a quick data story, Senator, if you don't mind, uh, yeah. I can't divulge the company name, but um, one of our larger enterprise clients, about about a 40,000 person employer, when they engaged with our platform a year ago, uh, and they had, they had from the CEO level down, they had declared up a hybrid workplace path forward, that they were going to rationalize their fixed portfolio and provide employees with choice. A year ago, their, expect, their, their plan of record was, we think 15,000 of our roughly 40,000 employees will be eligible. And, and they had done a, a thoughtful inspection of, you know, who's going to be home-based, who's going to be office-based, who's going to be flex and need something else. So they came up with 15,000. Right? Nine months later, post-launch, with the uh, success that they were seeing from the initial cohort of, of test users and the deepened convictions that they had about their long-term future – they ripped up their plan and rewrote it. Uh, 100% of their employees to be given access to their hybrid workplace uh, program, which we have the privilege of being the back end for. 100% given given access to it. Uh, no spending constraints. No red tape. No no bells. No constrictions. Go you know go forth and work productively. And so, not only are we seeing an order of magnitude of enablement by enterprises, we're also seeing a number of companies lean even more deeply into the scale of that. More and more conversations about how important it is for the hybrid offer to be equitable. Yes. That that every employee sees it as just a privilege. And in here in a in an age in our, our social existence on this planet where 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 individual rights are so much in the news and in, on some fronts retreating, I think a lot of companies are reasonably hypersensitive to this sort of inalienable right of employees to have some level of agency over how and where they work. That doesn't mean they can they never have to come to the office. It certainly doesn't mean that there isn't great value in coming together and bonding. But it does mean that there's a recognition that that mandating where you work and forcing that as a as a default always requirement, I think, is going to be a thing of the past for most organizations. Yeah, and I would agree with that. From I mean, from my perspective, you know, again, thinking back, I mean, I started doing workplace strategy consulting back in the early 2000s, like really full on going in deep with the data and looking at stuff. And I remember companies starting out as, you know, okay, we're going to allow 20%, 30% of our population to enroll, or we expect 20 to 30% of our population to enroll in some level of flexibility. Uh, and then, Six months, nine months, a year later, it was at 40% or 60%. So it was continuously maturing. And if you went back a year or two later, you were, you know, 75 to 80% in some mobile capacity and that 15 to 20% that were more the people that were in the office five days a week. What's interesting about right now is, 
you know, we kind of skipped over that maturity model. We went from being in the office to being working from home. And it's backwards to expect that, you know, people are, you know, like the whole mandate thing of going back to the office three days a week. That would be in the old way, sort of the, the, the path that would get you to remote working, right? Is, is that you start with three, four days a week in the office, then it's two days, then it's one day, then it's, you know, one day every two weeks and just over time, it just, it just matures. And so it's interesting to see, you know, how the business is kind of thinking about the purpose of place and kind of the needs that potentially people have or may have and then watching how the employees are actually responding to it because they've had the experience of working this way. Yeah. And, and Sandra, I think your comments, which I totally agree with, also open the door to another dimension that we, the collective we, people like Relogics and Liquid Space and all of the great workplace leaders and HR leaders that are thinking about our belief that we all need to recognize is a responsibility for us now, which is we have to help our organizations uh, rebuild the rituals and the rhythms of work and place, the rituals of why and where we gather. Um, we, we, uh, the answer to the future or the optimized outcome for an organization is not going to be just as simple as giving uh, every employee a tool like liquid space and saying, okay, you've got flexibility and choice and expecting that they're going to optimize their use of it. We should not underestimate how deeply set these new patterns are of us all as we've been forced to be working away from one another for over two years. And so uh, we as practitioners, Liquid Space as a company with a solution that, that is a lever on this, we have to be thinking about how do, how do we nudge? How do we, how, do we in, how do we provide our constituents? For us, it's the employees of companies. How do, we, how do we give them the cues and the visibility and the nudges to come together when it's appropriate, when it might enrich an experience, when it might yield more productivity for a task, when it might uh, create an experiential or a culture outcome that'll be relished. Nothing can replace the power and the energy you get and the strong bonds that get forged when you come together. Um, Absolutely. Nothing will warrant saying you have to hop in the car and commute every day to the office again. So how do we, what's the right titration of those two extremes? Life will find a way, but, but if we want to get to the better solution sooner, we need to be Empathetic and supportive, but active in that. We, we, the practitioners, we have to help nudge and rebuild those rituals, guide people to the right balance and experiment, test our way forward. So you talked about um, HR and CRE and kind of the need for those two teams to sort of work together. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about, you know, the CFO. <laughs> so, you know, you said earlier about, you know, setting up uh, partnerships with as a service companies. Um, how does costs get handled. I mean, in a traditional lease model, you had, you know, your rent, your OPEX, kind of all that stuff that hit a certain line. How is that different in a space as a service model? Well, actually, quick definition. So hybrid workplace, by our definition, is the totality of places that an organization works. It's every employee's homes. It's the company's offices, which are generally leased and capitalized on the balance sheet and thought about as dollars per foot. And then it's the rich tapestry of flexible office locations in between, some of which may be transacted by the task. Think of this as the spoke. You and I coming together to do this interview in a, in a professional recording studio or a meeting space for two hours. In other cases, they might be more persistent hubs. That might be a flexible office or an institutional landlord flex space that's been procured for months or a year or two, not a 10-year lease. 
right? All of that, those hubs and spokes, the flexible office economy is implicitly a flexible term as a service industry, whether it's a meeting room for an hour, an office for a day, a team suite or a hub for, for six months. That revenue or that, that transaction spend is as a service. It's not a capitalized lease. And so it's a different type of procurement than the vast majority of real estate leaders are familiar with. And in a lot of companies, it's going against altogether different budgets. In a lot of firms, it's, it's coming out of HR or out of administration rather than out of CRE, which has been like the owner of assets. So there's, you know, one response to your question is, yeah, the budgets and the cost allocation of the flexible office aspects of hybrid is different than that of traditional real estate. In a lot of companies, it's going to different owners. In addition, I'd say broadly speaking, most companies are seeing that their total cost of hybrid workplace, fixed traditional plus hybrid, is going to be less than what they were spending as a total cost of workplace pre-hybrid. Like companies are going to be more economically efficient coming out of this and arguably more productive as their employees find healthier and more personalized approaches to whatever the, the right mix of work and places for them individually. So it's going to be an economic win across the board. So that's interesting. One of the things that it makes me think of is, and as you were talking even earlier about just, you know, how vast the ecosystem is when it comes to these new and emerging workplaces, if you will, um, is how does a company even begin to think about managing costs like that's kind of to me the part that they think is probably most overwhelming having been the person on the other side of the table where you have a traditional lease there's a there's a process there's a structure to how you manage costs what happens now when you've got bills coming in from all these different companies or like how do you envision or how do you see that playing out well, in 2019, we were uh, a thriving, profitable uh, marketplace for workspace on demand. You know, individuals by the thousands, companies, you know, came to liquidspace.com. They could search, find a book space, pay for it. Boom. You know, Bob's your uncle. And we were looking forward to, and, and the market was accelerating and everything was looking rosy. The pandemic hit and I, I touched on the, the, the two hypotheses that we forged pretty quickly. We thought enterprises were going to become a lot more reflective and look to reduce their fixed real estate expense. We also thought that, that uh, these old canards, these old tropes of you got to work in the office for productivity were going to get broken and that employees would want more. Um, that led us to a fundamental new point of view about what the market was going to need from us, from Liquid Space. It goes right to your question. How, how do large enterprises who see the opportunity of economic efficiency and workplace experience gains out of hybrid, how do they control this? And what, what we surmised, literally it was like 10 weeks into COVID, we go, okay, yes, enterprises are going to buy a whole lot more of this stuff. We also predicted they're not just going to tell their employees to go to Google and search for coworking and send us the bill. That's just, that's not how it's going to happen. Companies don't work that way, right? Rather, they're going to want to do this in thoughtful ways. They're going to want to do it systematically. They're going to want to make it easier for their employees, but they're also going to want to stay in control, which means they're going to want to have data insights and they're going to want to have the ability to put permissions and policy around that behavior. And so that inspired us to create a wholly new product to complement our thriving marketplace. We, we built a SaaS application that we call Workplace Manager, which is a tool for 
organizations to be able to define the policies and permissions around a hybrid workplace program. How much can Sandra spend per day, per month? Where is she allowed to use space for what types of activities from what vendors? And and then so so all of that permissioning now is a part of how our platform works for companies. In addition, we knew that companies leaning forward and looking to optimize this activity would want data. They would, you know, we believe and we're now seeing it that that companies would be starved for the new insights around what the rhythms and the rituals of work are. And so the other critical thing is data. So I want to give my employees uh, agency. I want to give them flexibility and choice within the boundaries of permissions that we set up. But then I want to be able to observe. I want to learn, you know, what is working, what isn't. How are they reviewing the spaces they're using? Where are they spending? Who are my best providers? Uh, where am I seeing employees return to? Where am I seeing employees not return to? There's so much to learn. And so the data insights flowing out of our platform to our enterprise clients are amongst the most powerful things at at play in our business right now. That's great. I love it. (laughs) I love it. I think that that's probably the burning question or will be the emerging burning question for a lot of companies as they start to see the writing on the wall with respect to here's kind of a new way of working. And then it's, well, how do I manage it? And you've already figured it out. So kudos to you and and your team. Uh, Mark, this has been fun, a great learning experience for me. I love your passion. I love what you're doing. As I said, I was very impressed when I first heard about Liquid Space back in the mid-2000s, and I think that you guys are on the right path. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. And, and thank you, Sandra. Of course, you know, I'm a huge fan of Relogix and, and, and your colleagues and team. And, and, you know, for for the companies that recognize that the world has changed, and most are coming to that recognition, um, they need data insight platforms. They need they need tools that can help them decipher all of the data and get the real signals out of it. So you guys are certainly on the right side of history and in the right place at the right time uh, to be a powerful part of that. So I, I, I couldn't be more excited about all of our opportunity ahead. It's a, it's a great time to be in the business of work and place. Totally agree. <laughs> Thank you. All the best.